Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Okay. That, to me, she was there going to be their star witness. And um, I thought she was going to be. <laughs> I was scared to death of her, as I said. Um, but as soon as she came out with what I took to be mistruths, what she said were misstatements, um, and we were able to point that out time and time again. She was going out on a limb, doing everything she could to speak as an advocate for the other side, instead of just being, I mean, coming in and truly being fair and unbiased. I think that that was the turning point in the whole trial. Please rise, court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Steve Lowry, along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? Good. I'm excited. We got it. We've got a um, a full podcast house today. I know. So. I know. I, and I, I actually set up my uh, my Zoom so that I could see everybody at one time. So I'm I'm looking at a at a group of people. And so I um uh, I want to uh, go ahead and introduce. We've got uh, three uh, fantastic trial lawyers on with us, uh, and we're going to talk about the case that they tried in Santa Fe County, New Mexico. Uh, I'll get through the facts, but it, it resulted in a uh, what I saw a $73,210,000 verdict on behalf of a, a young, badly injured child and, uh, and his mother. Um, but let me, let me go ahead and introduce, uh, I've got Kent Buckingham, uh, Rick Barrera, and Mike Newell. Uh, Kent and, and Rick are partners in Buckingham Barrera Law Firm, which has offices in Albuquerque and in Midland, Texas. And uh, you can look them up at medmau-law.com. Uh, uh, from what I understand, and if I get this wrong, guys, Kent, I think you, you specialize pretty much only in medical malpractice cases. And uh, before you were a lawyer, you were actually a, a doctor, or you still are a doctor, probably. Well, yes, but uh, I, we handle a number of I used to just primarily do medical malpractice. Okay, okay. Now we're doing a lot of trucking cases and oil field cases because that uh, pays the bills better. Right. Yeah, no, I get it. Midmau, you know, those, uh, they, they're not always the easiest cases, even, even when you've got them on liability, which in this case, it looks like you, uh, you had them pretty strongly. Uh, and, then, and then Mike Newell is based in Lovington, New Mexico. And you can look up Mike at MikeNewellLawFirm.com. And that's uh, M-I-K-E-N-E-W-E-L-L LawFirm.com. One word. Uh, Mike, how are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. Well, um, let me get into talking about this case a little bit, and uh, and I'm, I'm going to give an overview of the facts. And um, I, I got to be honest, th this is a uh, there's a lot of facts in this case. And I, and one thing I got to say, Kent, in reading your opening, you did a really really nice job of walking the jury through all of the different um, uh, elements and and all of the different uh, medical terms and the things that went uh, you know, things that happened to your child in this case. Um, but, uh, so the name of this case was, well, I think the official name is Ann Sperling as conservator of Jonathan Botello and Lorenzo Botello versus Pecos Valley of New Mexico, LLC. I think we'll just call it Botello versus Pecos Valley of New Mexico, LLC. It was tried, uh, in August, uh, of 2019 in Santa Fe County, New Mexico. And you were representing Jonathan Botello, who is the injured child, uh, and Lorenzo Botello, his, his, uh, mother. And essentially what, uh, what happened in this case 
was that uh, Lorenza had been diagnosed with diabetes uh, during pregnancy. And uh, one of the risks of being diabetic during pregnancy is that you can have a uh, uh, large child. Uh, I think it's called a fetal macrosomia or a macrosomic child. Uh, and it's anything ab above nine pounds, 15 ounces, and Jonathan was 11 pounds, and a, 11 and a half pounds. Uh, and one of the dangers of having a, a very large child like that is that they can get stuck in the birth canal. And so the standard of care uh, is that they should have done a C-section and delivered him that way. That wasn't done in this case. And so then when they tried to uh, do the natural delivery, uh, as one might expect, Jonathan got stuck in the birth canal, uh, and he got his right shoulder uh, caught on the, the uh, pubic bone, uh, and during, and then he had a cord compression where the umbilical cord was basically cutting off oxygen to him so that it was a medical emergency, and at that point, the doctor, again, instead of doing a uh, C-section, um, decided to deliver vaginally and basically uh, forced Jonathan out of the birth canal after a number of minutes, uh, which caused a severe shoulder dystocia uh, injury and a, where it basically rips your, the nerves uh, from his spinal cord and gave him a right hand that he couldn't use and caused a, a hypoxic brain injury uh, due to that. And it also sounded like, and I, I, I may have missed this, but it also sounded like it caused significant injury to Lorenza as far as her birth canal. Uh, and it, I also noted in there that they, that they had to break Jonathan's left arm uh, just to get him out of there. And so he was born with this severe injury to his right arm and, uh, and a brain damage uh, from uh, going without oxygen for so long. And, um, and uh, that's essentially the facts. Did I get that right, guys? Pretty much everything, except we tried it a year ago. It was 2018. Oh, okay. I, I misread that on the uh, I misread that on the um, uh, on the forms there. I thought I saw 2019. Um, well, um, hopefully that means that uh, that you're past the appeals and uh, and you've got moved on to other things. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, well, uh, so then let me just tell tell everybody what the verdict broke out to be uh, on behalf of Jonathan Batello, The jury awarded 19.86 million dollars. Uh, on behalf of Lorenzo Batello, that uh, awarded $13.35 million, and then for punitive damages, awarded $40 million for a total of $73,210,000. Um, so I don't know who wants to start uh, between uh, Kent, Rick, or Mike, but um, you had a lot of complex issues in this case. And, uh, you know, I'm just interested in how you approach that with the jury and, you know, walk them through what, you know, could be seen uh, to the average juror as, as pretty complex medicine. Well, um, since I did the opening, I'll, I'll run yeah. off with it here. Uh, you're right. Uh, many times medical malpractice cases can be extraordinarily complex. Um, and I think that's one of the keys to not only this case, but trying any, any case at all is simplifying the case. And you noted earlier in your discussion about uh, what we did in the opening, uh, graphics are very important. Um, we were lucky we had a very bright jury, uh, extraordinarily so, as a matter of fact, as, as their questions proved uh, throughout the trial. But I, I think the simplification is the key and um, it really boiled down to a, a little 
a little boy that should not have been delivered vaginally, just too big to fit through the canal. Because it's kind of unfamiliar, I think, to a lot of our listeners and and unfamiliar to um, a lot of us in, in Georgia anyway. Can you talk a little bit about the jury being able to ask questions and how that works and what kind of guidance it gives you? Sure. Uh, as a matter of fact, it gave us tremendous insight into this jury as, as the day went by or days went by. Uh, in New Mexico, it's up to the judge, obviously, but uh, the jury is typically allowed to ask questions. Uh, the questions are submitted through the bailiff to the court. The court uh, will call us up for a, a, a bench conference, and uh, he shows us the questions, he or she, but in this case it was a he, shows the questions, uh, takes any objections that we have into consideration, and if uh, no one objects or if he overrides the objections, he then poses that question to the witness. And... Um, as we get into this discussion today, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about some of the questions that uh, truly let us know that the jury had grasped what we were trying to get across. Wow. I just think that's, it's so cool because you know, I mean, and, and you find out if you get to talk to juries after the verdict, then you find out um, that a lot of them still have questions even at the end, or they were sitting there wanting to ask questions the whole time or wishing a question would be asked that was never asked. So I just think that's so cool when you're in a venue where the jury is able to participate like that. I agree. I, I, wish, I wish it were in every venue that we tried cases in because it, uh, for one thing, it, it makes the, the jury that much more interested uh, if, if they're able to pose their questions at the time. But it also gives us tremendous insight into their mindsets uh, and that, that's that's very it was key to this case actually yeah and if i might add uh, kent and rick took that information and they would process it and 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 then develop testimony as we went forward based on that insight that we were receiving from the jury yeah right so you could adapt the things you were saying and the points you were making to the things you knew they were interested in exactly yes Right. And then when your next witness comes up, you put, you ask that question that a juror asked on the witness before, and that way, just keep building on it. I, I mean, I love it. I do too. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a, a question. There were some extraordinarily good questions. Uh, one of them uh, had to do with uh, the brain injury. Um, and when the question was asked, uh, at that point, I, I believe we had won the case in my mind because it showed me that at least that drawer uh, had appreciated what I was trying to get across in the cross-examination neurologist called by the defendants. And so I, I wish we could have this opportunity to have it done in every case. So um, tell me this, the, um, I noticed a couple of interesting things about this. One is that your uh, the defendant doctor who um, had actually delivered Jonathan had passed away, um, and so I'm wondering how that played out at trial, or how, if that gave you any difficulties. And then the other is they that the defense didn't bring any liability expert uh, to say that you know um, that the doctor hadn't breached the standard of care, which you know I guess they don't in theory they don't have to do, but it. It's, al- it's almost the same in my mind as admitting fault. Well, um, and I'll speak again, but then I'll, I'll let everybody else have a turn too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you I see how things go around our office. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I had actually sued this doctor about uh, 18 years ago on a shoulder dissociate case. 
uh, involving a little girl. And um, we, we had won that case. Uh, and so I knew him fairly well. Um, but during the uh, passage of this case, although we were chomping at the bit to get him deposed again, um, apparently he fell ill and passed away. Uh, he had undergone, uh, he was a very large fellow, and he had undergone, I believe, weight loss, uh, banding uh, the stomach. And I don't know if he had developed complications from that or what, but he passed away, sadly, uh, before yeah. we were able to get him deposed. So we went into this uh, without his testimony. Um, and uh, let me talk just for a second about, this is the most remarkable case in terms of liability. Um, they did designate a liability expert. He was a uh, board certified OBGYN, a nice fellow. I liked him a lot. Um, at the beginning of the deposition of their expert, I asked to see his notes and he pushed them across the table and I, I read through them. I shoved them back over and I said, doctor, would you mind reading that sentence at the very bottom of your page? And he said, no problem. And then he proceeds to read the following. This case is indefensible. <laughs> and I, I said, you, <laughs> did, I, did I understand you correctly, doctor? You're, you're, you're being pr produced by the defense and you're saying the case is indefensible? And pretty much yes. Uh, he then went through, um, I went through our expert report with him and he pretty much agreed with everything our expert had to say. Um, he challenged a couple of very small minor points. Um, but then we got into a big battle uh, right before the trial because we obviously were uh, had fully in intended to call him as, an, as a case, in our case in chief. Uh, I wanted the jury to hear uh, their own experts say the case was indefensible. Um, but we had a great judge, <laughs> uh, outstanding in a number of ways, um, one of which was keeping me from hurting myself. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Great will do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he saved me on any number of occasions throughout this case. Uh, at the time, I was cussing up a storm in my mind, but uh, in hindsight now, um, he was certainly uh, a brighter fellow than I am. And so uh, all we were allowed to do at trial, we were not allowed to call their expert we were simply allowed to say that the defense had chosen not to call an expert in the area of liability. Okay. And that was it. This episode of the Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. 
They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials Podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Wow. I don't even, how, how does that, <laughs> how does that even happen where you get to a deposition and the first page on the expert's notes is that the case is indefensible? It was stunning. It, it was, it was the beginning of what I called a perfect storm on this case. Yeah, uh, really. I mean, I before. Usually, I, I've had experts sort of give away a case, uh, you know, during a deposition, but usually it's followed up pretty quickly in settlement discussions and you end up getting the case resolved. But uh, was there any serious discussion before trial? That was the, yes, uh, serious on our part, not serious on theirs. Uh, right. We, I think we had, was it three mediations? We yeah. had a total of three. Yeah. Oh wow! And we we never bridged the gap uh, between between the parties. Um, I the the key point on this case was they contended Jonathan did not have a brain injury. We contended that he did, and that was the difference I think in the mediation discussions is that they just did not appreciate um, the harm that had been caused to this little boy. Okay. Well, and they, and they also took the position that that even if he did have a brain injury, their client wouldn't pay um, what we valued the case at for a brain injury as well. Right. So um, it was it was kind of for not. I, I don't know what the uh, uh, venue in Santa Fe County is like. Is it is it one of those counties where they were confident because there hasn't been a lot of success on medical malpractice cases, or um, or there it's a more conservative venue? No, actually, it's a more plaintiff-friendly venue. Okay. Plus, we had our uh, we had a conservator appointed to help us on this case. Um, she happened to reside in Santa Fe, but she was an outstanding conservator, very well qualified to handle uh, the issues of Jonathan's money. And so, uh, we proceeded to file here in Santa Fe because of her giving us venue. I'm interested to know how the defense tried to defend on liability without an expert. I mean, did they, at trial, were they arguing that they weren't liable uh, for delivering vaginally, even though no doctor was there to say that it was okay? Pretty much. Uh, interestingly, our expert had been utilized by the defense firm on s several occasions as their own expert. They knew him very well. Um, they still went after him a little bit on some of his opinions, um, but they they basically took the attitude that um, everything they did was correct. Uh, it was kind of shocking, actually. And, and one part, of, you know, I, I kind of shortcut some of this, so uh, feel free to, you know, where I cut some of the facts out. But it, you were critical of uh, the doctor for not only not doing a um, C-section, but also that um, while he was doing the delivery, that he was using a, a vacuum delivery device and that um, 
and you had as one of the cardinal rules. Uh, by the way, I, th- I thought the way you used the rules, uh, you know, and this was was really effective as well. Uh, but the, that you never use a vacuum on an infant of a diabetic mom. Well, there were three main thrusts of of liability. First, uh, his failure to perform serial ultrasounds, which is uh, key on this case because. Uh, Jonathan was giving obvious clues throughout the pregnancy that he was growing to be a very large child. Um, and the serial ultrasounds would have picked that up. Right. Uh, and the doctor was actually told by some consulting ob that did some genetic testing on mom, who was an, uh, a fairly elderly lady for giving birth. She was in her mid-30s. And they had some concerns about genetic issues with her uh, passing down onto Jonathan. And so Jonathan and, and mom came up to uh, Albuquerque and had some genetic testing done. Everything was great from a genetic point, but both of those uh, healthcare providers sent letters back to the defendant doctor or to the doctor um, saying, uh, everything looks good, but we recommend uh, some ultrasounds to monitor fetal growth. Those were in his file, those two letters, but he never did those ultrasounds nor any of the other serial ultrasounds that were required by the standard of care. So that was the first key issue. Uh, the second would have been the failure to do the C-section, which would have avoided this whole scenario. We right. wouldn't be talking to you right now had he done the C-section. And the third, um, I, I think he was in such a panic. At, Jonathan was stuck for 10 minutes in the birth canal. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, as you know, I, I think you've done some med mal in the past. I, I know you do a lot of auto cases, right? Auto we, product we, we do all kinds of stuff. And uh, I'm actually getting ready for a medical malpractice trial right now. But, uh, but yeah, I, we, we, we've done some. Good. Well, uh, as the child is passing through the birth canal, once the head emerges, he's still not breathing on his own. He's still getting the life support through the umbilical cord, which was compressed because of him being stuck in the birth canal. And so the doctor panicked, I believe, and put the vacuum on to try and extricate Jonathan from the birth canal with the vacuum, which exacerbated the birth injury of the brachial plexus. Um, But eventually he was freed from the birth canal. And, and what I saw when he was actually delivered was that his APGAR scores uh, um, were zero and that he was essentially uh, a stillbirth uh, yes. for about five minutes. Is that right? Yes. A zero at one minute, zero at five minutes, which is basically no signs of life. None. Right. Um, and so, but they were doing CPR on, on Jonathan during that five minute period. Um, and eventually they did detect a, a heartbeat. Uh, after five minutes, and um, so they, his color returned to some extent, and uh, they were able to resuscitate him. Did you ever? I, I know you couldn't depose um, the the de- defendant physician, but did you ever find out why these ultrasounds weren't done? I mean, I I saw in your I don't know if it was in the open or the close that he was doing Leopold's kind of like an old school way of. Um, that I guess it's sort of known in the field doesn't really, isn't really going to give you a good idea of the size of a baby if it's certain, if it's basically either very small or, or very large. Is, did you get, I guess, can you talk a little bit about that and why that was below the standard of care, but also did you ever figure out why these ultrasounds just weren't being done? Uh, the family was uninsured. Um, I don't know if that played a part um, or not, mm-hmm. uh, but 
it, it, it's honestly it's obscene <laughs> that he wasn't doing these ultrasounds uh, whether it was there was going to be coverage or not for them um we were not able to get uh, an adequate reason from anyone with the defendant as to why they weren't being performed right guys do y'all remember anything else about that no i mean there, there really wasn't i mean that was the you know, there, there was a lot of questions going into it. Um, the only other person who had ever seen her at the clinic was a nurse practitioner that we originally named as well. But she basically said she's high-risk pregnancy, so I'm, uh, you know, I don't think I should handle this and refer her on to the defendant uh, doctor. Um, but we never found that found an answer as to, I mean, again, why it was so blatant. I mean, he missed the ball in so many different areas. Right. Um, that it's crazy. Here's my view, and, and, and recognize I come at it a little different than, than Kent and Rick, but I thought he had delivered uh, at least one prior child to Mrs. Mateo, and I felt like that he was just confident that because she had a vaginal delivery at that point that she would be able to do it again and really just didn't give her the attention that she should have gotten from any – you know, reasonable healthcare provider. Uh, he just kind of pushed it along. That's, Actually, my take. that's a good point. There, there were two prior children that uh, he had given birth to, uh, or he had delivered um, from Lorenza. Both of them had been born vaginally, both of them normalized infants. She was not diabetic in, through either one of those pregnancies. And that was the key distinction with Jonathan's pregnancy is that she was diabetic which gave rise to the enormous growth that he had. I mean, and we never really made um, made an issue of it, but in my mind, and just discussing it with the family, they're they're immigrants, and so they predominantly speak in Spanish. So I, I dealt with them a lot, um, and in, in my conversations, preparing for both depositions and trial testimony, the um, attitude I received was that, that there was really there really was a, a lack of communication between the doctor and, and Lorenza. And so even though she was telling the nurses things and it sounds like uh, the nurses were telling her things as well, uh, that there was just, you know, there was a, there was a barrier in the communication as well. And I don't really think the doctor took much time to ensure that, well, he didn't do anything for one. Right. Right. Two, the communication wasn't, you know, he didn't try to communicate with her either. Right. Well, and I'm sure, I mean, it comes up so often when we talk to people about um, medical malpractice cases in particular, and it comes up in our own cases, that sort of trust that you have in your providers or that you kind of have to have, um, especially depending on the medical issue, because you you have to put your trust in the people who know a lot about it. It's not something that's accessible to the average person. Um, and then, and, you know, i I think we've all been in that situation where you have to trust that your providers are looking at your records and doing the appropriate thing. But then on top of that, to be in a situation where um, maybe you don't have health insurance, you're financially disadvantaged, but then you've also got a language barrier. I'd imagine that that's even more of a situation where the family is, you know, they're going to do what they can do to advocate for themselves, but they're, they're, they have to put a lot of trust in their providers. And she did, Yvonne. That's a very good point. She had gone to this doctor for the prior two births, which went fine. Uh, and she believed everything would go well with this one all the way through and, until the end. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, Yvonne, a moment ago about the Leopolds. Um, and that's for, for those of the audience that don't do 
medical, medical malpractice cases, that's basically where the physician, physician just kind of palpates or puts hands on the, the abdomen and just kind of feels, uh, feels and tries to estimate, estimate uh, the size of the baby. But it's, it's very, as you said, old school. It's very inaccurate. As a matter of fact, his Leopold, he performed that when she came in on the day of, uh, for delivery. And he estimated the child to weigh uh, eight and a half pounds based upon his Leopold's. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. Um, but he had also done a, a, the, the measurement, uh, which indicated that there was a huge discrepancy between the size uh, from measuring from the pubic bone up to the top of the uterus. And that measured, I think, 43, uh, which that means that the baby is 43 weeks when uh, the baby was at actually 38 weeks. So Jonathan was again showing a red flag that he was a very large baby there. And that should have been an immediate either C-section or an immediate ultrasound at least to find out how big he was. Right. And it's, it sounded like y'all had a, um, based on the transcripts that y'all had a, um, a demonstrative to kind of show with the, the fundal height as, as the weeks were progressing, how that discrepancy was getting larger and larger. Larger. Yeah. Actually, uh, I think I had a tape measure I was measuring on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, didn't, I didn't have the uterus, but I was trying to, I, I, I tried to point out again, simplicity. We just try and make it as simple as we can. Um, and the jury was nodding. They understood. Uh, because I always ask them, I say, are you getting this? I, I actually turned to them and say, are you getting this? And they nod. They let me know that they are. So. Yeah. Hey, and I might also add again, that's where Kent and Rick do a great job. Their demonstrative exhibits covered every aspect of the litigated issues that we were going to have in the trial, and they simp simplified them and then put the perspective on them that we wanted to advocate. And, and Kent and Rick were prepared for, you know, however that could go. And we had exhibits that we never used or demonstratives that we never used but these guys anticipated where things would go and they were ready for it. And I think that can't be understated in this process. I mean, try to not only anticipate the case you want to try, but anticipate the case they're going to try and be ready right. to counter that. And, and I, I'd simply, that's why I like doing cases with the guy is I've never found anybody better at doing the counter punching and litigation. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, demonstratives are so important and I, I found with, um, you know, juries have come to where a lot of times they expect stuff like that. And if you're doing it and then the other side isn't, that's something that is picked up by the jury as well. And that occurred here. Uh, we actually, in our opening, we had uh, our PowerPoint with a, a number of different medical illustrations and various other diagrams that we were using to portray certain ideas. They didn't have a PowerPoint at all. Uh, their opening was just to get up and, and talk uh, fairly briefly, actually. So, and I think, so from where go, the jury started seeing a difference in the trial presentation between the two sides. Was there ever any uh, evidence by the defense on a reason why you wouldn't want to do a C-section or they, were they just saying there was no indication for a C-section? They tentatively raised the idea of risk of a C-section uh, very briefly. Uh, and our expert pretty much shot it down, um, and then it went away. There was no other. There was no other explanation for why they didn't go forward with one. 
It seemed, and it it seemed like that they. So I guess I know one of their defenses was that they they contested. I guess from a causation standpoint, that the the brain injury. Yes. Um, and then what about for mom's injuries? Did they just that would that was sort of they were just going to let that go and just focus on the brain injury and and whether there was an actual brain injury. Pretty much, I I don't think they appreciated. Um, as did the jury and my wife, uh, and actually most ladies that have yeah. evidence, um, appreciated the extent of the damage caused by ripping an 11 and a half pound baby out of this, this poor lady's vagina. Yeah. He had a, a, a grade four tear, which went into the rectum, uh, wow. through the uh, rectal wall, um, and caused severe problems for her. And they didn't even, I, I don't remember her being questioned about that from the defense. No. So they never really questioned her on that at all. Even during deposition, I don't think. So, uh, I mean, she's, she obviously uh, had some severe uh, visual injuries, but also just the, the mental suffering that she experienced. Right. Right. Rather extremely large. Uh, and the jury appreciated it, as did, like I said, I, I've, I've discussed this case uh, with a number of different ladies uh, since the verdict, uh, and they all took the position that uh, if that were my vagina, that's right. the kind of money I'd be expecting to be awarded to. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's horrible all around as far as what happened to to mom and to baby. But, I mean, definitely just, read, just reading about um, – you know, in general, she was what, 30, 36 years old, I think. Yes, mm-hmm. So I, I don't know, just, just reading that. And I know that's advanced maternal age, but it's not that old, you Still know, right. um, yeah. reading about what happened to her and, and, and yes, and her injuries and the baby's injuries too. I mean, absolutely. I, 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 that, that just resonated with me right away. Um, so to, so, so to tor- sort of take the position that it, it's, I still don't really understand how they defended the case other than just, disputing that 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 there was a brain injury that 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 was the 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 main thrust of it um i i do want to talk a bit more about lorenzo just for a moment um lorenzo was spanish-speaking only and uh was part of his cultural part of it is just her own um personality she was very shy and very embarrassed Mm -hmm. about these issues um and we knew that going into this uh, because Rick had done a, a very good job. And then we brought in uh, Carmen Ramirez, our, uh, our paralegal and office manager to help with it as well. Uh, just to work with, with Lorenza to try and make her more comfortable with things. Um, we talked about it in Vordar with the, with the, the panel um, because we, we wanted them prepared for the fact that she wasn't going to be saying a whole lot uh, about this. Uh, she was just very, very shy. Um, and fortunately, we had a, a number of Hispanic people in the panel that raised their hands and discussed um, the cultural aspects uh, that are somewhat different from just purely a Caucasian aspect of discussion uh, where uh, the, the female Hispanic perspective is that we keep these things to ourselves, And so that 
that helped, I think, to hear from the panel that they weren't expecting a whole lot from her. Um, but I think both Rick and Carmen did a great job of preparing her um, for, for her testimony. So hats off to y'all for that. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I might say this, there's another component to this that both the, the jury picked up on, I think, but certainly the judge did in the post-trial motions. And that is there's an emotional component that New Mexico allows us to recover uh, for. And that was, can you imagine having your baby stuck inside of you for 10 minutes, knowing that that baby could be dying right there inside of you? And then beyond that, when the baby was pulled out and resuscitated, it was immediately transported to another facility to do this therapeutic hypothermia treatment that was really a huge godsend in this but um i think the jury and the judge both picked up it wasn't just mom's physical injuries it was this whole emotional component of being in that moment if you will that moment of tragedy and horror yeah, I'm wondering, um, were you in New Mexico, are you allowed to suggest a number as far as what you want in damages? And did you, did you suggest to the jury, you know, some ranges or numbers to award for these various injuries? Because it, like, it sounds like the defense wasn't really contesting the shoulder dystocia and the injury to the right arm much at all. Is that right? Well, there was really no way to contest that because right. visually – uh, we introduced Jonathan to them at the very beginning, uh, both in Vordar as well as at the opening of the case in chief. Um, and Jonathan's right arm is withered um, and his hand is drawn up. I mean, there's no way to dispute that. So I don't think uh, there was any challenge on that aspect other than um, they did challenge the uh, amount of disability that it would cause for him during his lifetime. Um, they called uh, actually a, uh, basically a physiatrist out of University of Colorado uh, that works with children and a brachial plexus uh, clinic up there. And her testimony was essentially that uh, he can accommodate uh, this issue. Um, I, this, this case was really special though for several reasons. Um, for me personally, my dad had a very similar injury and I knew what the future held for Jonathan, both in terms of the impact on his capabilities of functioning as a human, buttoning buttons. Uh, I remember having to cut my dad's fingernails and toenails because he couldn't do that himself. Um, but also just the social impact mm -hmm. of having a withered right arm. Um, you know, that's a very, uh, it's a, from a social issue, embarrassing. I remember my dad being stared at when we were out. So I, I felt this case uh, dramatically for that reason. Rick, uh, my partner, has a, a, a darling little girl with some special needs as well. Um, so he felt the impact of Jonathan's brain injury. So a very emotional case for all of us um, as we went into this. How did y'all handle, um, we talked a little bit about how you sort of prepared the jury and, and were able to handle it a, a little bit with the, with Invar Dyer as far as um, how mom wasn't going to, um, they maybe weren't going to hear from her as much. How did you let the jury um, get to know Jonathan? What sort of things did you do? Did you, did you have video? Did he come to the courtroom? 
Well, uh, with the jury's permission, uh, or with the panel's permission, we made the determination not to have Jonathan and mom in the courtroom. Um, although we did tell them that they would be in a hotel room adjacent to the courthouse at all times. Dad was in the courtroom the whole time. Um, other than our introduction of Jonathan at the very beginning, where we walked him up before the jury and said, Jonathan, this is your jury. Um, they, they didn't see Jonathan anymore. So Jonathan's story was told through his dad um, and through the pediatric neurologist that had examined him. And uh, they both discussed the effect of this disability on him. Yes. And mom, mom came through as well, stronger than, than what we expected. Um, you know, Kent you know, mentioned Carmen. Carmen was really instrumental in really kind of playing a big sister role to, to Lorenza. Um, and, you know, I spent probably eight hours with her one day. And then when we were picking the jury, Carmen spent the rest of that day, the second day, working with her. Um, and at one point in the testimony, Lorenza, I was prepared that Lorenza wouldn't be able to answer a question. And she didn't answer the question for me. I then posed a second question. And then on the record, she asked for me to go back and ask her the original question. And she was able to, at that point, start to tell her story. Once she got over the fear of discussing her issues, she gave us a lot of information about Jonathan's day-to-day -day life and how that was different compared to her other children and the behavioral issues um, that she dealt with, which were on point with, um, you know, what they heard from our experts later on about, you know, some of the signs showing the actual brain injury and using examples um, that were similar to what mom had, had experienced, because obviously based on her education level as well, she doesn't really understand why he's acting the way that he does because she doesn't comprehend that. Oh, right. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, this is one thing you very rarely hear of in medical malpractice cases. So I, I wanted to get your thoughts on how you, what evidence you had and, and how, what got the jury in, obviously inflamed, but you got a punitive damages award of $40 million. What, uh, do you think played into that and in getting the jury to, uh, find, you know, the conscious indifference or, um, the standard that you all had to meet for that? Um, well, I think here we can thank uh, Mike Newell. He began the process with, um, with the pediatric uh, neurologist that the defense called. And I, Steve, I don't think the jury was inflamed. I think that they were just appreciating the severity of the recklessness right. that contributed to this. Um, so Mr. Newell uh, took the deposition of the pediatric neurologist uh, up in Denver that the defense was calling and um, set her up uh, to where she was committed to certain positions which were really untenable compared to what I was able to bring out from the medical literature uh, during her, her cross-examination. She was under direct for about three hours with the defense um, and the mantra that we heard continually was normal MRI equals normal outcome because Jonathan's MRIs and ultrasounds uh, were, were normal. Uh, and they placed a huge bet that that would carry the day in terms of convincing the jury that Jonathan had no brain injury. Um, they showed, uh, I don't know how many abnormal MRIs from other cases 
and then asked each time from the pediatric neurologist, so does Jonathan's brain look like this? And she said, no, no, no. Um, and so finally we got her on cross-examination and we were able to confront her with uh, passages out of Volpe's pediatric neurology or pediatric uh, neurology of the newborn, I think it's what it's called. Um, and she said that that was basically the Bible, that she used that uh, to teach residents. Um, and Mr. Newell got all that from her in her deposition. And so we were able to show the jury that uh, the medical literature did not support her position, that there were uh, several instances uh, in Volpe where you can have normal MRI, but yet have damage to portions of the brain. Uh, and that, back to the questions presented by the jury, that was when I knew we, I think, had turned the corner with the jury, because one of the discussions I had with this pediatric neurologist um, was that if you have injury to the thalamus um, and another area of the brain, the injury is on such a microscopic uh, level that it's not seen on MRI. And this is all developed in Volpe. Um, and she had to admit that. And one of the questions that the jury posed for her uh, after I passed the, the witness was, if there is injury to the thalamus, what type of um, signs and symptoms would uh, a child show? And uh, the, a brilliant question. I, I wish I'd have thought of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Be, and I, I don't know who asked that question, um, but at, when, I, when I heard that question, it, I knew that they were understanding yeah. what we were accomplishing because she then had to go through and, and state all of the things uh, that are seen in Jonathan. Uh, and I was able to develop that with her uh, at that point. So um, questions paid off in this case. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great <laughs> lawyers like Yvonne. Uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, Reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. <laughs> uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means. And they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. Well, one of the other questions I saw that they asked, and I think this was maybe brought up in the, in the um, closing argument, was that they had asked um, a pretty insightful question, I guess, about when, um, when was the last chance to kind of avoid the damage that took place, um, the injuries to Jonathan. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yes. Uh, and again, another brilliant question. 
which I, <laughs> <laughs> right. I wish I had asked. <laughs> uh, they were a lot smarter than I was. Uh, so the, the question was posed to our expert, our OB-GYN. Actually, he was an MFM, fetal, uh, maternal fetal medicine specialist. Brilliant doctor. Um, one of the best experts I've ever worked with. Maybe the best expert I've ever worked with. Um, as a matter of fact, I met him the first time when he kicked my ass in a case. <laughs> so, those are always the guys you want to go hire. They really hire. are. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah, question was posed to ride too, remember? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, the question was posed to him, basically what you just said, Yvonne. What was the last moment that this could have been averted? When, and so um, the answer was given uh, during the trial, but I wanted to go back and revisit it in closing because I wanted to compliment that juror on such an insightful question. And basically, it, it, the answer was, uh, even as the head is coming through the birth canal, uh, there is a technique where basically the baby can be pushed back into the uterus, up the birth canal, back into the uterus, and then an emergency C-section performed at that very moment. And that would have been the, the last time that, that something could have been done. But the fact that he used the vacuum and pulled the baby on through, uh, that negated that opportunity. And I wanted to reinforce that with the jury, that once again, this doctor blew every chance that he had to have a, a, a normal baby out of the situation. Right. Well, and that's what's so great about, um, I mean, that's what's really cool about the jury being able to ask questions, but also, you know, hopefully you can accomplish that if, um, if, you, if you focus group the case or even if you just explain it to your, you know, your family members or your friends, because I think you can kind of, especially preparing for depositions and talking to experts, you can get bogged down in all this stuff. And then the jury um, or just an, a non-lawyer, somebody who hasn't been in the case for a while can just cut right through all this stuff that they don't understand why you're talking about and ask a question like that. Like, okay, well, when was the last chance to sort of. Exactly. Yeah. Avoid this. Yeah. It was a perfect question. Did you all, um, did you all focus group this case? Yes. And thank God we did. Um, I'm, uh, I'm an old lawyer. I've been around a long time. Um, I always think I, I know who I want on a jury. And so my initial impression was, I want to get a bunch of child-bearing uh, age ladies on this panel. Um, but as, as we got into our focus groups, we saw such a, an enormous amount of negative attribution on mama um, by child-bearing ladies um, to the extent one of them expected her to basically grab the doctor by the lapel and, and demand serial ultrasounds. Um, when mama didn't even know what an ultrasound was. Um, so very quickly, we determined that we probably needed to have more men on the jury. We ended up with, I think, 10-2. Was that the final? So 10 males, two ladies? It was 9-3. It 9-3. Was nine, three. Nine, three. And we had a lady actually, uh, as our court. Sorry? 8-4. We're alternates, yeah. I think Rich right. Yeah. 9-3. And our, our four-person was a lady. Um, and so. But the, the ladies came through for us as well. Um, it was a, um, a unanimous opinion all the way across on all issues. What about aside from, um, you know, learning that kind of that, that, that these 
women um, could, could tend to be harder on mom for, for maybe not knowing to advocate more for herself or, or, or doing something. Um, anything else kind of big points that you got from this focus group that really affected how you, um, from focus grouping this case that affected how you guys approached the case? Uh, the, the damage model uh, was also discussed quite a bit in, in focus groups. Um, and again, the childbearing ladies uh, of age um, were not as generous as I had hoped them to be. Um, whereas the men on the focus groups typically came through with the larger expectations of verdicts, um, which tempered our decision making as well as who we wanted on the jury. Yeah, I've noticed that too, With uh, um, especially where you have a, a child injury that, that uh, a lot of times moms can be very critical of parents that, uh, that they think haven't done what they needed to do. Um, so, uh, it, I mean, that's, that's great that you were able to get that out of your focus group. Yes. They, um, one of the other issues that, that, that came up in the focus group um, was the uh, damage uh, to Jonathan and how it was assessed. Um, and so that, that had us uh, work with our pediatric neurologist. Um, we wanted to make sure that he had examined Jonathan and he was uh, nice enough to come down uh, to New Mexico and do a, a thorough examination of Jonathan. Um, and he was able to speak to those injuries uh, at trial and describe them much more uh, thoroughly particularly much more thoroughly than the defendant's pediatric neurologist who had never examined Jonathan yet chose to come in and tell this jury that he did not have a brain injury. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about this whole argument that he didn't have a brain injury or not much of a brain injury because just from a common sense standpoint, when you know that you've got a child that spent 10 minutes without oxygen, trapped in the birth canal, came out as stillborn for five minutes, how anybody could sit there and with a straight face say there's no brain injury from that. It's just got to really undermine their credibility. Yeah, it's therapeutic hypothermia. They put all in on therapeutic hypothermia on the brain yeah. injury. And one of the things that Kent did very well was we had a, uh, a discharge note, if I remember, or, or something after Jonathan had been in Odessa, uh, post-birth about a week, if I remember correctly, and there was a, a, a definitive finding of a brain injury, a hypoxic brain injury, if I remember correctly. And, and to me, that was the one expert that the jury knew was a treating physician, was not part of either side, and was kind of, you know, the, the most credible source if you would, in the room, and, and can't really use that to bolster our guys, bringing them always back to that point of the, the treating physician, and then he really used that effectively against the other side, in addition to uh, Professor Volpe. Uh, let, me, let me point out one other area that I think played a huge part in having the jury swing uh, our way on the area of, of a brain injury. The pediatric neurologist that they called um, on paper, she scared me to death. Um, she was extraordinarily well-trained uh, out of Stanford. She ran a, a brain injury clinic up there in Colorado Children's Hospital. Um, on paper, she just looked perfect. But she made some um, 
she claimed the, that they were uh, errors. She misspoke. But during her direct examination by the defendant, she took the position that the zero APGAR indicated that there was a heartbeat. It was zero to 99, according to her. Um, whereas a zero APGAR means zero heartbeat. Right. She was doing that in an effort to show that there, they were trying to maintain that he was getting some oxygen during that 10 minute period. Uh, they didn't want, as you pointed out, the, they didn't want the jury to appreciate that this kid was suffocating for 10 minutes with no oxygen. Um, and so she was, she did, uh, and she also did it with the, uh, zero on color. She said that the child was uh, pink at five minutes when in fact he was still zero, which meant he was blue. Mm. And so both of those were, they, they went beyond stretching the truth. Uh, they were, in my mind, they were lies. Um, and I, I think that that really uh, turned out to be critical here. Um, we, we opened her cross-examination by showing um, the guidelines put out by the American Academy of uh, Neurology, which states that expert witnesses are not supposed to be advocates in any way. And um, uh, when those guidelines came out, I think that initially uh, all of the academies were thinking they could use those against our experts uh, to try and intimidate our experts. Um, in fact, uh, we turned that on them. And each time that she came out with these misstatements or lies or however she wants to characterize it. Um, I asked her time and time again, are you being an advocate here by not speaking the truth to this jury? And I think that that's according to people that were observing the trial, the jury went from attentively watching her to basically looking everywhere else in the courtroom, but at her during the cross-examination. Right. Wow. It really turned, turned them off on her. She really was a prime example of someone who not only looked good on paper, presented well on direct. Um, and in cross, you just saw her deflate, um, having to go back and, and say, well, no, I misspoke. Um, by the end, she was very compliant with the answer. She was no longer you know, trying to advocate um, for it, and that really made a big difference. Right. And that's always powerful when you can watch a witness just deflate on the stand. Um, you know, juries notice that. Yes. Um, Go ahead. Sorry, Yvonne. No, I don't want to interrupt because I have some questions about damages. So I don't want I don't want to move away from this topic too quickly. If there's. Um, well, I, I, I that is to me, she was there going to be their star witness. And um, I thought she was going to be. <laughs> I was scared to death of her, as I said. Um, but uh, as soon as she came out with what I took to be mistruths, what she said were misstatements, um, and we were able to point that out time and time again, she was going out on a limb, doing everything she could to speak as an advocate for the other side instead of just being I mean, coming in and truly being fair and unbiased. I think that that was the turning point in the whole trial. Well, and that's what Steve, Steve, what do you always say, Steve, about you, what you survive your case in chief and then you. And it and theirs. 
Yeah. And then what? We, we, we have a saying around our firm that you survive your case and you win it in theirs. So yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to remember that. You mind if I steal that from you? Oh yeah. yeah you take it. <laughs> but it, it took me a while to get the hang of the first few cases that I tried with the firm. I just really felt like after our case, I just, especially without juror questions, you know, I'm just right. looking at them. I don't know what they're thinking. And, exactly. um, and, and I, but I always feel hopefully like things come together during their case in chief. Um, and, and when you get to cross their experts, but I'm always, I'm always kind of surprised because if I'm, if I've read their depositions and everything, I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen, but um, it always does seem to come together on cross or if it comes together, that's when it happens. Well, it, it, that's a really good point. Cause uh, Rick did a great job on cross examination of both their neuropsychologists as well as their uh, life care planner. Uh, so they, they basically just, every expert that they called, we were just winning with, that's great saying, Steve, I like that. We, were, we really did win this case, I think, with their experts. Yeah, it definitely can be a turning point in the trial, and we've seen it happen, you know, uh, uh, time and time again. And, you know, and hopefully, you know, it keeps happening, but uh, it, it does mean you got to put a lot of work into your cross-examinations, which, are, you know, something that uh, can be very effective. Yes. Hey, to that point, you know, Kent, Mr. Buckingham was talking about what I did in the deposition. Kent told me we need one thing from the good doctor in Denver on the deposition. He said, just find out what she she considers to be authoritative in the area. And yeah. he constructed his whole cross off of her one answer to that question, which was Volpe. And I mean, but Kent worked, I mean, for days and days on that cross. And I mean, so to your point, it didn't happen by accident. Kent knew exactly what he needed. And then he, he went to work finding out everything he needed to. So he, he, he did the, the legwork on that. And then to the other point, I think timing matters. The two best cross-examinations to your prior point, uh, as we closed out the, the Friday of the first week, Rick had their first expert up and he just destroyed the expert. So the jury went into the weekend. Right. It's like negative view of their credibility. And then the last expert that the, that the jury heard from was this expert from Denver, which, you know, Kent's cross examination of that. Yeah. I, I was teasing him the other day. I said, someone needs to study this because this is, this is how you do a cross. That's awesome. That's great. Um, so for damages, I'm, I'm interested in hearing both how you, um, you know, how you presented the numbers in terms of life care plan and everything else to the jury. And, and then, you know, the, the, um, pain and suffering, but then also what you did, um, to talk to them about punitive damages. Rick. Um, so um, we, as far as the, the life care plan uh, was concerned, we had a, a really great expert out of Texas who's uh, what we call an old hoss. He's been around. He taught me, um, he taught me quite a bit over a cigar um, the night before he testified about this is what I expect and this is what I do. And um, when they did his deposition, they took a lengthy deposition of his, and there was a you know a, a fight in the beginning about um, our neuropsych and 
some issues with, with that that we had to deal with. A long story short, when they did the deposition, when the defense did the deposition of him, um, the defense attorney tried to get under her, under his skin. And again, he's been around forever that he was, he was playing with her. Um, and so she would ask a question and he would give this, you know, long convoluted answer. And so once we presented his life care plan, um, and he t- testified to that in cross, I'll never forget that, um, the defense attorney who did his cross asked him a question. And the question was, um, you, you made mention about, um, you know, in your experience, him not being able to um, have the executive function um, based on you know whatever so and so expert said, and you don't honestly believe that. And he just sat there and chuckled and said, "Well, let me tell you a story about so and so." It was a client of his that he had dealt with before, and said, "So let me tell you, she had a brain injury, and she ended up the family was eating at Denny's, and she um, she ended up grabbing the butt of the waiter." And lo and behold, there was a charge against her. So yes, I believe it. And that just blew them away because <laughs> the the defense attorney thought, you know, I'm going to show that this guy is just full of it. And he laughed at the end of it with that chuckle, chuckle story. And the jury just believed, oh, now I can see what he's talking about in real life. Right. Um, yeah. And so creating that damage factor of, of understanding how does that actually apply? Because not only looking at the numbers of, this is what you need for therapy and this is what you need for, you know, attentive care. But the reality of how do these damages affect them in the daily life that, that they did a really good job of, of, of showing how he's already showing these signs of this brain injury. Cause that obviously was the, was a hugely contested issue. Right. Yeah. And then what do, what do you think? It, uh, I mean, I, I still would like to hear a little bit more about the punitive damages. What do you think uh, turned the jury or was the evidence that, that turned this into a punitives case from just a, a you know, a, a medical malpractice case with, with negligence? Bro, Mike? Well, I think it's the New Mexico jury instruction. Oh. I had an expert <laughs> that was going to try to speak to this. And we would depose the expert. They were trying to frame this in terms of managerial control. And the New Mexico jury instruction does not speak in terms of managerial control. And if you looked at the way this particular clinic was set up, the ultimate decision maker on all issues relating to patient care was this doctor. And so he had the requisite level of authority so that getting back to Kent's earlier point, the jury felt like this was reckless and intentional enough based on all of those facts that were brought out about, you know, the Leopold's maneuver and not doing the serial ultrasounds and how it was a simple fix. And Jonathan could have been a normal young man if they would have just done the C-section, but instead they didn't. And so I think the, the jury instruction coupled with the facts just carried the day and the jury just just kept applying to the, the facts to the law until it led to the ultimate conclusion that they were going to award punitive damages. And I have no idea where 40 million came out, but right. certainly, you know, it, it's certainly within the BMW threshold of range when you have, you know, the, the compensatory damages that we have in this case. 
Right, right. Well, it's fantastic work because like I said, I mean, you don't hear of punitive damages much in medical malpractice cases. I really think it speaks to the the depth of the recklessness that we saw in this case time and time and time again. Steps could have been taken which would have avoided this outcome. Uh, but this this mom and Jonathan are going to have to live with these injuries for the rest of their lives um, and their devastating injuries. I, I, I really I really think that. Oh, go ahead, Mike. No, you go ahead. I, I really think in in you know, looking at reviewing the testimony, because obviously, you know, when you're in the heat of the moment, I, I went back to look at the testimony. I, I, I got really um, focused on, on what we can't do the fantastic job of basically showing that there was, you know, basically you have mom coming in, you know, regular intervals every month and every week. And there's all these instances of one, two, three, four, five, you know, 15 odd times that he could have done an ultrasound to, to get the thing resolved. He could have done an ultrasound when she shows up at the delivery room. Um, and just seeing that, you know, you've got these red signs, red warning signs. You know, we, we were really focused on, can't use in this presentation, the, the red flag. There was red flag after red flag after red flag that, it, you know, it really was conscious indifference. Yeah. Well, and I guess it's you, you all did a great job at setting up the, how many times along the way towards his birth that they could have done something different that would have changed the outcome. Many, many occasions. This, and that's one of the things I pointed out, I think maybe in closing, is that Jonathan is going to live, outlive all of us in this courtroom at the time. And yet he's going to know 40 years from now, 50 years from now, that he didn't have to be the way he is. And um, that's going to be a, a tremendous burden to carry in my mind that um, I don't have to have this deformity or I shouldn't have had this deformity if they had have just done what they should have done. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. So I want to talk about one other question. <clears throat> yeah. Since you yeah. Heard questions. Yes. We had one other jury question that was remarkable in this case, and that was during jury deliberations. Um, the jury was charged on both actual and punitive damages. Um, and then um, after they deliberated probably, I guess, six or seven hours, we got a jury question and it was, to whom are punitives paid? And uh, that was uh, next to getting the question is, can we have a calculator? I, I, I've never heard of a better question come out of a jury right. deliberation. And pretty immediately after that, uh, the defense came up with uh, another settlement offer at that time, which was a very significant move on their part, very significant move. And we were really torn as to what to do. Um, then we had the knock on the door. We had the verdict. Um, and the, the defense lawyer was saying, you know, this, this is everything, you know, take it or leave it kind of thing. And um, so we called, the dad, we called Jonathan's dad, who had sat through the trial, um, understood English fairly well, couldn't speak it very well, but understood it. Um, and we asked him, what do you want us to do here? Um, and his reply was that he had watched this jury the whole week, and he felt that they were going to take care of his son. And so I turned to the defense lawyer and said, we're taking a verdict. And lo and behold, that verdict came in. So, wow. 
Yeah, that's great. I just, I just got the chills. Yeah. Uh, but this is also where I'm so interested in jury questions because my only experience with them is when they're deliberating and they knock on the door and it's terrifying and you wait for everybody in the room and then, you know, the, the note gets passed to the judge and the judge looks at it and you're waiting to know what the question is. And then if depending on the question, you're not sure what to read into it, if anything, um, but, you know, that's that's not when you get a question like, <laughs> who will these punitive damages go to? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty great question to hear. Yeah. Yeah. That one's going down in my uh, record book for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Well, look, guys, this has been great. We've we've taken up over an hour of your time and we really appreciated everything you said. Um, th this has been just a great discussion. I want to uh, remind everybody that we've been talking about the case of Botello versus Pecos Valley of New Mexico, LLC. It was on behalf of Jonathan Botello and Lorenza Botello. Uh, and was a total verdict of 73210000 And we have been talking to Kent Buckingham, Rick Barrera from Buckingham Barrera uh, Law Firm. You can look them up at medmau-law.com. And we've been talking with Mike Newell from, uh, Mike, from the Newell Law Firm. And you can look up Mike at mikenewelllawfirm.com uh, in Lovington, New Mexico. Guys, thank you so Wait, much. Rick. This has been a great I discussion. One other thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry. I want to cut. I'm almost done. I'm a lawyer. Yeah. I always hit the yeah. Keep it on. This is a remarkable work that y'all are doing. Um, oh, thank you. We're actually on this now because I, I was speaking at a seminar and I was giving y'all a plug because <laughs> I, I, I travel a lot and I listen to podcasts. I listen to all kinds of podcasts for law, but y'all's is one of the top ones that brings me knowledge. Oh. And um, you've made me a better lawyer. Uh, just. I've listened to every single one of them. And uh, even your last one where you're doing the, the year in review. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I want to thank you for the amount of work that y'all put into this. It, it's really a remarkable a learning experience. So thank you. Well, listen, guys, it, it, we couldn't do it without uh, fantastic lawyers uh, like you that are willing to share. And uh, and so we uh, we really appreciate it. We enjoy what we do. But uh, but again, it's uh, it, it gives us a chance and an opportunity to talk to lawyers like yourself who've done yeah, it's uh, really great thanks, work. It's really thanks to you and, and our other guests who are willing to share their knowledge with with each other. So thank thank you all for coming on. Well, our pleasure. And thanks for all the knowledge you've given me. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great trials podcast.com 
note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.